An ethical will is the bequeathing in writing to our loved ones the things they really will want and need from us when we're gone. Our values, our blessings for them, our life lessons for them, our hopes and dreams for them, the truth about our lives, our failures, our regrets, our victories, our love. That's what people want and need. Rabbi Steve Leader, welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm so happy you're here. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm happy to be here as well. For the benefit of our listeners, let me just say that Rabbi Steve Leader is the senior rabbi of the prestigious Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles and is really a prominent voice on societal and Jewish communal issues and challenges, including those all about meeting death with dignity and leaving honorable legacies. So I'm going to start with the commonality among all of us on earth is death. Why do we have such a reluctance to talk about death? It's more accurate, at least in my experience, to say that there are times, periods, eras in our lives when it's difficult to think and talk about death. Mm -hmm. There are other times and experiences and eras in our life when talking about death becomes a powerful, ennobling, necessary, deeply meaningful conversation and opportunity to have a more beautiful life. You know, there's a time to deny death, particularly in our youngest years and in our 30s, our 40s, sometimes even our 50s, when we're so ambitious. And we need to subordinate death in order to justify the ambition, right? Why be ambitious if it's all for naught? Yes. We push finitude down into the basement of our psyche. But then, of course, at some point in life, death, which is always sort of pounding on the basement ceiling of our psyche and our subconscious with a broomstick, you know, it's there. It's, it's there. animating us in ways we don't really understand. At some point, something happens that flings that basement door open and there is death staring us right in the face. Then we have this great opportunity. I consider thinking about death life's greatest opportunity. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. Hmm. And it's really true. Imagine if we were deathless beings, deathless creatures. What meaning or purpose would we have? None. There would be no ambition. Nobody would get married. Nobody would have a family. Nobody would create anything because nothing would have a consequence. It is the very fact that we're going to die that impels us to live. I've never really thought about the fact that when we're younger, we don't have the space for it. And you're so right that the broomstick, it's there and it pounds and all of a sudden it's in our face. The previous book to For You When I Am Gone is a book called The Beauty of What Remains. And it's, it's essentially, and I know you've read it, it's essentially a book about what Steve Leader, the rabbi who had experienced a thousand deaths vicariously by helping families through it, what that guy, Steve Leader, the rabbi, thought he knew about death and grief and life that had to be completely reconsidered when it was Steve Leader, the son, who was experiencing the death 
of his father. Hmm. Yeah. And so even for me, a kind of death professional, I subordinated death. And I'll tell you the story, and I know exactly the moment. And you know, because of what you do to help people, you know, almost always the family of the deceased has the opportunity before the service starts to come in and view the body of their loved one. Then the casket is closed. And now, I had stood literally next to more than a thousand families looking at the body of their loved ones. And honestly, Stephanie, it didn't really affect me. I, I could have eaten a sandwich standing there. And, and it's not because I'm an unfeeling person. I mean, obviously, I was there to support them, but it wasn't my loved one. Sure. And then my father died. My father was buried the morning of Colnidre. And we were at my parents' synagogue in Minneapolis, where I was raised. We were sitting in a little room waiting for the rabbi to come in and take us into the sanctuary to view my father's body before the casket was closed, etc. And when the young rabbi walked into the room, I remember thinking to myself, I know exactly how the rabbi feels right now, but I have no idea how I feel. And then the rabbi walked us in to the sanctuary. I approached my father's casket. I put my hand on his chest. To really understand the power of this, you have to know that my father and I looked almost identical our entire lives. Like If you saw a picture of him at 10 and a picture of me at 10, you would have a hard time distinguishing. And my dad died when I was uh, 58. I approached the casket, put my hand on my dad's chest, and I looked at my dad, and I thought to myself, hmm, that's how I'm going to look when I'm dead, and my son is bending over my casket. Mm. I am going to die. That was the moment that basement door flung open. And that moment changed my life for the better. Every brush with death is a brush with life, our lives. That's the power of it. It is the great teacher. Thank you for sharing that. That's not only profound and so very personal, but you took us right there. I do believe that when somebody dies in our world, that heart stops beating the energy of our world changes. Most of us listening to this podcast have seen a dead body. And it's very clear that that is not the person we knew and loved. That is an empty vessel. Yes. That person, use whatever word you want, soul, spirit, energy, essence. It doesn't matter which word you use. That is someplace else. I don't know where, but I know that a body is only a small part of who we are. There is so much more to us than our corporeal being. And so, yes, exactly. A vessel that was once filled with light and energy and love is now empty. And yes, that changes the world and it changes us. For sure. You know, the, the poet said, death is the absence that is forever present. That is so perfect. So, so true. So let's talk for a moment about your most recently published book. Mm-hmm. For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. It's all about how we think and talk about an ethical will and how we write one. So for our listeners, I want you to talk about what's an ethical will and why it's important and why should we all consider writing one? So let's start with what it is not. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> because when most people hear the word will, they think of a part of an estate plan, a last will and testament. And for most people, that is their final word to their loved ones. The last thing their loved ones hear from them is a legalese document, boilerplate with some changes, written by someone who barely knew them. And it's all about who gets what and when. That's your final word? That's your bequest? Really? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I tell people all the time that allowing that to be your final word to your loved ones is like giving them a picture of food. It's not going to sustain them. It's not going to nourish them. It's not going to comfort them. One of the saddest memories of my life was after my father died, walking down into the basement of my parents' home and seeing my father's things in a heap on the basement floor. Nobody wanted them. Mm. And the irony of spending so much of our life working to make money, to buy things that we believe matter, that we believe are an inner life, is such a sad legacy, really. And believe me, I, I'm not a non-materialist or anti-materialist. I like nice things as much as the next guy. I like really good old Petey Scotch and, you know, I have a collection of rock and roll photography, but I don't invest those things with meaning and consider them in any way my legacy to my loved ones. An ethical will is the opposite of all of that. It is the bequeathing in writing to our loved ones, the things they really will want and need from us when we're gone, our values, our blessings for them, our life lessons for them, our hopes and dreams for them, the truth about our lives, our failures, our regrets, our victories, our love. That's what people want and need. So this book is designed in a very specific way to help each person who reads it tell that story. And it does two things when you go through this. One, clearly it leaves a very powerful written legacy of our real life values for our loved ones. But it also does something else which is equally important and part of, I hope, this great and important reevaluation of life that's been going on in our country post-COVID. I think a lot of us have been thinking about, is this really how I want to live? Was what I was doing in 2019 really meaningful? So there's this great reevaluation going on. So when you go through this process of answering these 12 questions for yourself, yes, you're going to leave a beautiful, powerful, honest document, but you are also going to have a kind of MRI of your own inner life that you can hold up to the light and say, okay, this is what I say I believe in. This is what I say my truth is. Am I living that way or is my life mostly kabuki? Am I pretending? I'm not a fan of the word regret at all. And maybe that's because I like to run away from it. I don't want to think about my regrets, right? You want to talk about that? I want <laughs> okay, Tell at another time, Rabbi. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. There you go. So why was that your first question? Because I have a feeling there was an order to what you laid out. The order of these 12 questions is very deliberate uh -huh. and perfected over 35 years. They just unfold our story. These are the questions I have been asking families for 35 years when I gather together with them to talk about their loved one who has died so that I can get my arms around the truth of their loved one's life and help them talk about the truth of their loved one's life. 
I used to teach a class called homiletics at the seminary here. And, and the homiletics is just a fancy word for how to write sermons, wedding addresses, and eulogies. And the first thing I would write on the board when it was time to talk about eulogies was an obituary tells us the facts. A eulogy tells us the truths. And this process is all about the truth. You know, the fact that I was born in 1960 in St. Louis Park, Minnesota and went to Aquila Elementary School, other than my age, it really doesn't tell you anything about me. It's a fact. If I were to tell you when I was a little boy and the stress in my home became unbearable, I would retreat to my canoe on the creek behind my house for peace and comfort. And to this day, I retreat to nature for peace and comfort. Now you know a truth about me. Mm -hmm. So these questions are meant to help the truth unfold. There are two reasons that the first question is, what do you regret? One is that to answer that question requires vulnerability, requires that we break ourselves open. And that's the headspace I want the reader in as he or she or they approach the next 11 questions. So part of it is setting the right tone for the conversation. The second part of it is that what I discovered through this process of writing about regret is that what most people regret most is not something they did. It's something they didn't do. Most of us find a way in life to move past what I would call the mistakes of commission, the things we did that were wrong. We find a way. We apologize. We forgive. Time heals. We grow. Yes. But... You cannot really undo the past when it comes to a mistake of omission, something you didn't do. This question, in its own very subversive way, is actually not about the past at all. I often say to people when they come to see me, Stephanie, and talk about some regret, I call the couch in my office the couch of tears. When people sit on my couch of tears and they talk to me about some regret, the first thing I say to them is, well, personally, I have given up all hope of a better past. It's a kind of triage, quick, blunt, effective way of saying to a person, we're going to talk about this, but this is all about the future. This is not about the past. The past at its best is about the future. This regret, this omission, the time you didn't show up, the words you didn't speak, the opportunity you didn't take. This ought to ennoble your future. You are not shackled by the past. You are not trapped in yesterday's ways. Tell the truth about them. Grapple with yesterday's ways. And then use that truth to ennoble your future. So is there a right time to write an ethical will? You know, I was asked a question, one of those sort of trick journalist questions by a, <laughs> on a talk show the, the day the book launched. And the interviewer said, if you had to summarize your book in two words, what would they be? <laughs> and it came to me right away. I said, those two words would be, don't wait. In fact, I wish in some ways I had called the book, don't wait, hmm. but it's too late and I've given up all hope of a better past. <laughs> Talk about a regret, right? Don't wait to say these things. Don't wait for your story to be told. Don't wait to ask yourself these questions and then ask yourself, am I living my truth? Or are my professed values and lived values different? 
Am I just talking the talk? I would say it's never, never too soon to tell your story and to think about your truth and to share that truth. It's never too early and it's never too late. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that my last conversation with my father was my last conversation with my father. I didn't know. One visit he could speak and the next he couldn't. And we never spoke again. I'll tell you something interesting. Because of some podcasts and social media, millennials are buying this book like crazy because it's not a book about death. Millennials are asking themselves these questions. How do I want to live? What's important? Who is important? If I'm going to go down this path in my life, is this the path I really want to be on? They're asking all these questions. Great. And they're buying this book far beyond, you know, everybody says, oh, there's a book for old people. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. We're all trying to understand who we are and where we want to go and with whom and why. We're all grappling with this. Death is always about life. And the future is always informed by the past. And I really believe that once one goes through the 12 questions, there's nothing to say you can't revisit these questions at a later date and how important that is. I've written two ethical wills, one in my 40s and one in my late 50s. They're very different. My kids were different ages. My marriage was at a different point in its mellowing process. They're very different ethical wills because I'm fundamentally the same in some ways and very different in others. And it's a work in progress, my ethical will, just like I am, just like we all are. Exactly. So yeah, I hope that people go through this book many times in their lives. So when you wrote your first ethical will, you were in your 40s, what triggered that for you? Why did you realize you had to write an ethical will? It really started with a sermon idea. The sermon coming from the part of the Hebrew Bible that has in it this deathbed scene with Jacob calling his 12 sons around him and him speaking honestly to each of them in front of all of them. In some cases, it's a blessing. And in other cases, what he has to say is, is quite harsh, but hopefully instructive. Whenever I study the Hebrew Bible or any text, I first asked myself, well, where is that in me? Where am I in this story? And where's this story in me? And I thought, well, I'm a father. What would my words be to my children? Mm. And I decided to try it. And I did. I was on a talk show with a friend of mine. Her name is Amanda, whose husband died when he was 40. And Amanda was about 32, 33. And they had a six-month-old baby, little baby boy. And we were talking about this new book, For You When I'm Gone, and about an ethical will. And when they went to commercial, Amanda leaned over me and said, you know, Steve, I wish Nick had done this hmm. so that I could share it with Elvis, who's their son, because he's going to want to know. He's going to ask me, who was this man, my father? Yes. And I wish Nick had done this. And I said to her, well, do it for him. Answer these questions the way you believe Nick would have answered them. I could see on her face that that opened up a world of opportunity for her. And she's done it. And it's been a very powerful experience for her entire family and Nick's entire family. What a gift to them now and what a gift to Elvis later. Absolutely. Do you think that the conversation around ethical wills has forced people to think about 
planning a funeral, dying, or has it really kept people in the present? I asked them to go there with me and take this journey with me all the way to the point of imagining themselves having the final word at their own funeral. That's the last question. Exactly. What would your final blessing be to your loved ones? If you could stand up at your own funeral and look out at the people you love and say something to them, what would it be? The question before that is, what do you want your epitaph to be? What do you want your headstone to say? What do you want carved in stone as the truth of your life? This is a very powerful exercise in essentialism because when you have only 15 characters per line and four lines total, 60 characters to distill a person's life down to that level is a really instructive exercise in essentialism. And here's what's interesting to me about it. And this never ceases to impress itself upon me very powerfully. So obviously, I spend a lot of time in cemeteries, as do you. (laughs) And I'm always amazed and schooled by the fact that despite we all are unique individuals and we all lead unique lives, almost every headstone in the cemetery says the same thing. Loving wife, mother, grandmother, daughter, sister, friend. That's it. What matters is our love and connection to a tiny handful, and none of us have more than a tiny handful, of people who matter. If you say that is how you want to be remembered, that is what you want carved in stone, then you get to ask yourself, well, am I living that way? Or am I distracted? I recently read, and I wrote this down because... It's not often that I read the words of an Indian Bengali poet, but I did. Rabindranath Tagore, and he wrote, The one who plants trees knowing that he or she will never sit in their shade has at least started to understand the meaning of life. This is what you did by writing this book. Before I let you go, I want to talk about how COVID impacted your Rabinet. And I want to know if it was a trigger for any of your writings. The most beautiful thing about it was that COVID caused me to fall in love again with the wisdom of my tradition, mm-hmm. of the sages, because there was nothing, nothing, no aspect of the human condition that the rabbis did not think through very, very deeply. And let's remember that life and the human condition, they haven't changed in 2,000 years. When the rabbis were writing 2,000 years ago, they had no reason not to expect that they would die from a plague or disease or violence. And they had to think very deeply about how does one live through and with that kind of reality of being surrounded by danger and death? So they knew a lot. And COVID caused me to re-engage with that wisdom of the power of community and faith and generosity during times of great uncertainty. So that's the first thing. The second thing it did was 
it really pushed our whole institution forward quickly. It disrupted the norm. It pushed us digitally, for example, to a place it would have taken us five or 10 years to get to otherwise. So right. It pushed me. I wrote, I'm not saying this out of hubris. I'm just answering your question. The day we went into lockdown in Los Angeles, I recorded a video and sent it out to the whole congregation talking about the wisdom of the sages during difficult times. And then I wrote a Shabbat message to the congregation every Friday for 48 weeks. I wrote 48 of these things and they were long. I don't know where or how I found that energy or that creativity or that depth of thought. I don't know how I found it. COVID put me into a, a different gear as a leader. Honestly, I was glad that I was leading. I considered it a call to duty. Was any of this worth the death of a million people? No, wasn't worth it. But let's not let it be worthless. I often say to people, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty handed. Hmm. Three books ago, my book was called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. And that suffering has transformed us. And let's embrace that. Otherwise, those million people died for naught. And by the way, it's not a million people who died. It's one person who died a million times. That's a different way of understanding the magnitude of the loss and the lesson. As we close, what can we do? How can we help families start this? Because I think it is so valuable. I know how self-interested this sounds, but honestly, give them the book. But I wrote this for exactly the reason to give exactly the answer to the question you've asked me. The way to do it is just hand someone this book and say, take a look at it. I promise you, well, you've read it. If you give me five pages, give me five minutes and you will be inspired to tell your story, to speak your truth and to think about your life even more so than your death. Someone reached out to me on Instagram to tell me she's part of a father-daughter book group and they're reading the book together. Oh, how great. Think about that. Like, Let's read this together and answer the questions for each other. Wow. Wow. I would have loved to have done that. Yeah. The book is For You When I Am Gone by Rabbi Steve Leader, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. You truly are a gift to the community, and I thank you for taking the time and being in conversation with me today. It was my honor, and I deeply appreciate what you do for all of us. Thank you. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for tuning in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know who may be interested, and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy.